The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Monday. It's the right hook, and it's news talk. George Hook here, and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today on today's programme. A new mechanism has come into force to deal with teachers who are accused of misconduct. The Fitness to Teach provisions uh, of the Teaching Council Act mean that any person can make a complaint against a registered teacher. This could be the public, his employers, or other teachers. I'm joined by Fintan O'Mahony, teacher in Skullwira in Carrick on Shore. Fintan, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. Thanks for coming back. How, how, how do you react to this? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's to be welcomed um, in, the, in, the, in the main. Um, you know, every profession has their regulatory body. We have teaching council. Um, they um, have long been seeking to have, you know, control over the quality of teaching. So, you know, you can't complain about it from that point of view. There are some niggles I'd have with it as a teacher in that you know, that you'd have to make sure that due process is followed and that, you know, you wouldn't be getting any kind of spurious, vexatious, as they call them, complaints put through. But ultimately, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have a huge problem with it. I think it's a, it's a good thing in the, in the main. Well, uh, hold on, Fintan. I, I don't have a brief either way here, but uh-huh. one thing is absolutely certain um, is that, te- that parents have been much become much more aggressive towards teachers in recent years and also in defence of their little Johnny. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm not saying it was right, but if you came home 50 years ago and said to your, your mother or father, listen, I got six of the best in class today, they probably they would say something like you deserved it. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it should be, but, but do you not think that it's moved too far the other way? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I'd be careful about commenting now on that, something like that. But yeah, I mean, I know I think you're right. Generally speaking, you know, parents are, and I'm a parent of kids myself in school now, parents are an awful lot more aware now of what's going on in school. They're an awful lot more in tune to what's happening. That's that's a good thing, I think. Um, I don't think that, uh, you know, that necessarily we want to go back to a time when kind of parents just hand the teachers the complete responsibility. I do understand you know, what you're saying, that teachers and parents are might, might come into conflict more now because, you know, um, I, I, I'll put it this way to you. I was, I was talking to someone about this this morning. People see teaching, I think, as a kind of a job. That's a kind of, I call it a role job. You know, it's like being a judge or being a guard. Anybody thinks they can do it, you know. Um, and for that reason, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of, you're, everybody thinks they're an expert at it to a certain extent. I, I went to school, so therefore I know how schools work. You know, schools have changed so much in the last 20 years, in the last 10 years. Um, that nobody's experience of school themselves really has a huge amount but, of bearing uh, yes, on, on but, what's going on in their, their children's lives. But that it may well be true, but, but the change over the last 20 years, let's take 20 as an example, uh, it may not have been uniformly mm-hmm. changed for good mm-hmm. uh, in that. Um, but but the, the crucial thing is here that you know, you you can't really be a sadist and a teacher anymore because you can't beat some kid up. You can't do that. And that's uh, a good thing. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you, by and large, children are much more aware. So the kind, any kind of sexual misuse, by yeah, and large, yeah. is is not a possible thing. 
The biggest complaint, surely, from parents, if this process comes in, is they're going to say, listen, your man is a teacher for maths and he can't add and subtract, or your man is a teacher for French and he hasn't got a word. Yeah. Isn't isn't that going to be much more likely, the kind of complaint? Um, I, I don't know. Really? I, I, I think it might, be the, it might be the opposite in that yeah? a lot of those complaints that would be could be dealt with at a local level are would be dealt with at a local level. So we'll say I'm a, I'm a parent. I'm not happy with something that's going on in my my daughter's class, and I ring the school and I'll get on to the principal. And the first stage of any kind of complaint like that is that the principal would usually set up a meeting of some sort between the teacher and the parent to try and iron out the problem. Yeah. Now, most of the time, I've been to meetings like that myself. Most of the time, that's very easy to. To, to to negotiate, you can get through that very easily. Sometimes they go on to the next level and to, to the next level after that, which is board of management level, where the board of management would be adjudicating over a complaint made by a parent. Now, this system that we're talking about introduced, that's been introduced today, you'd hope that that is after this okay. local well, level now, hasn't been right. able to resolve it. All right, I'm glad you explained that. So, what complaints, in your view? Given that it could be the principal, mm-hmm. then it could be the board of management. What complaints need to go to a higher level like that? Yeah, For well, example, that you're having six gin tonics yeah, before yeah, you yeah. come in the morning. Yeah, um, yeah, well, you know, yes, um, you know, not that that happens very often, but or off at all. But you know, I mean, we look at the Scottish model as an example a lot uh-huh. because they've run it. For, they've run a kind of a fitness to practice um, system for about 45 years. But in the last 10 years or so, they've introduced a very similar to the system to the one that the Teaching Council envisages here. So what, they're, what, they, have, what they do is they take up uh, complaints, for example, uh, there's a couple of very o- obvious ones I was looking at earlier, um, where there was a teacher who was inspected a number of different times and um, had had complaints about from her, from her members of her, or from her colleagues, from parents, from the management in the school. She had refused to uh, take up remedial work that, you know, that would fix the problem she had in class. And she was eventually given a two-year suspension. There was another one where there was a science teacher in a school in, in Scotland who was suspended long-term because he was showing inappropriate um, videos to the kids in a science class, you know? So, you know, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Okay, so it but, can't uh, be resolved okay. at a local level. All right, but, but Fintan, I have to say, like, it's a while now since I've been involved as a parent, uh-huh. but as a grandparent, you still are kind of involved. But but the thing is, those kind of things remain pretty rare. I mean, oh, they then, absolutely yeah. do. Yeah, so, like, so everybody who is jumping up and down today, like the Independent had a huge headline yeah. and, and so on. Yeah, I wouldn't be a happy fan of that headline with the big words, bad teachers across the country. Not, Correct. I don't think that's what we're talking about here at all. Well, and, that's why I want to talk to yeah, you, because yeah. the Independent headline is basically saying that bad teachers better look out now because yeah, I mean, they're yeah, going to get... Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I accept what you're saying, that, you know, that if, if that were the case, if the headline were true, it would mean that, you know, um, a parent who has it in for a teacher for some reason or yeah. other, or a manager who has it in for a teacher for one reason or other, or other teachers who have it in for a teacher for some reason, or if my next-door neighbour was a teacher and I don't like the look of him, you know, I could make a complaint about him. and ha- I don't think that's going to happen. Well, I'm delighted because I was really worried about that, yeah. and it was the primary reason I wanted to talk yeah, to you, to be honest. Like, last, last year in Scotland, they had about 30 or so of them that actually went to a hearing. Okay. And, about, and only about half of those resulted in 
in somebody actually okay. getting a sanction. So you're talking about, you know, a dozen or so. All right, but there is a good ex- example here because I don't know anything about uh, fitness to practice for teachers, but uh-huh. but like there is a fitness to practice for doctors. There for is instance, and nurses, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, how many doctors get struck off per annum? Oh, I don't know, but I know the numbers are low. I don't know yeah, the exact numbers. Yeah, it'd certainly be on your on one on one hand. Yeah, and and, and those hearings are held, and you know, you're they're held in public, you know, as much as they can be. And that's, that is an issue that they be held, that our, our fitness to practice hearings be held in public. You know, because teachers are fairly public people, you know, you're in there yes. every day in front of 30 kids and, you know, you're, you're, you're very much in the, in the, in the face, in the, in the public eye. So, you know, it, it seems from what I can read about it that the, the teaching council can, uh, and the committee in charge can, can resolve to hold it in camera if they wish. Well, and hold on, while, sorry, do, I don't want to skip over that lest anybody not really understand. There is a possibility that these hearings could be held in public, is that right? No, they will all be held in public. But that's surely that's, wrong. That's the default. But that's wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, well, I agree with you because there might be some sensitive issues being dealt with there. You know, somebody's health could be dealt with. If it was a child protection issue, you'd have to have um, a... uh, uh, You'd have to have it held in camera. You know, so I think, you know, it'll it'll definitely take some teething time. But all the while now, Fenton, I talked to a priest last week in Cork, right, uh-huh. who was anonymously accused yes. uh, by somebody yes. of, of, of sexual fear, yeah. abuse, right? Now, he was absolutely innocent. He was found to be innocent, but after a huge amount of effort, like, to get there. But, but he, he had no defense against yeah, that. Yeah, and the now, reputational damage like that is very dangerous. It, for, you know, you can imagine a teacher who yeah. has been accused even of something less minor, the more, way more minor than that having to go back into the classroom the next time anything happens in that room with the teacher then everybody's oh sure this is the fellow who was in front of the teaching council and that's definitely a worry that a lot of teachers would have and but who's again, pushing this like who are the people who want it who want the, the, the fitness to practice hearings in the first place They're, that's legislative that, 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 the teaching council act came in uh, de- uh, uh, I say, you know, over a decade ago, and various different bits of it were put in abeyance until they could get all of the legislation in place. They actually don't have all of the legislation in place yet to make this happen. You know, the the, the, the process I was talking about at a local level that is the voluntarily uh, accepted yeah. by parents' associations and by schools. Yeah. You know, if that were statutory, this would this would be we'd have no problems whatsoever with this. But you do have a problem though, there's no doubt, Fenton, mm-hmm. that if you have hearings in public, you do have massive reputational damage, even yes. if you're innocent. Yes. This is the real like if yes. you're guilty, tough luck. But yes. I mean if you're innocent. And secondly, the thing I worried when I read this, now admittedly it's much better than the independent headlines suggested, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, there's a real opportunity for vexatious complaints. Yes. Well they the, the uh, director of the teaching council, Thomas O'Rourke, who actually is interviewed inside the, in the Independent, and he, it's actually a, it's interesting interview to read. He he um, he made the point that you know they're going to exclude vexatious and frivolous ones um, complaints early on, and you know then they're and they're going to try. I think for the moment, at least anyway, to try and see if something has been resolved already at a local level that you can't dredge it back up again. You know that you had a there was a row between a teacher and a parent over a student in a school and that it went all the way to the Board of Management and was dealt with everybody's satisfaction, and now somebody would complain about the same thing to the Teaching Council. You know, they would expect, I would expect that those things like that won't happen. But again, you know, it'll take a while before all that beds down, but presumably in the long run, the, the system, it should work. It would, it would help, though, like I said, if there was 
there's a couple of there's a couple of things that I would prefer to be done. The first one I would have about what I said about the local system being kind of beefed up by legislation or by putting on a statutory basis. And the second thing is a little bit more clarity on how a teacher would defend themselves against you know an, um, an accusation. There doesn't seem to be any way for the teacher to access you know um, funds, for example, to to defend themselves. You know that's that's a costly process. Um, whereas the teaching council has, you know, the money that's collected from every teacher in the country every year uh, as a, a registration fee to, to back up its, its fight against the teacher, a teacher who's innocent, like you say, uh, or, okay. or who's presumed innocent, doesn't have the weight of that kind of money behind them, and that would be a concern of mine. That yes. if, if you don't have that kind of um, that kind of you know money behind you, you don't have that kind of uh, ability to defend yourself, and we all know the law is expensive. All right, thank you so much for joining me. Teacher in Skullwirra in Carrick and Shannon Fenton O'Mahony. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie well, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, has failed to ban all Russian competitors from Rio 2016, leaving it up to the individual uh, sports federations. Track and fields has actually already done the banning. Now, if you're going to watch the Olympics on television, you can't actually watch it without having the complete book of the Olympics next year as a reference. Um, and it's uh, written by my next guest, and he keeps bringing it up to date happily for all of us and he's got a complete book at the Winter Olympics as well it's David Walachinsky David welcome to the program once more thank you very much yeah interesting I didn't know until quite recently that we do share one thing in common our first Olympics was Rome in 1960 oh yes I was a 12 year old boy uh, my father had been a ghostwriter for Jim Thorpe he raised me on Olympic tales, and we went to Europe the first time in my life I'd I'd ever been outside of California, and we happened to be in Rome, and so uh, we went to the Olympics. Well, I was a little older, but it had the same effect <laughs> on me. I remember the great Livio Berruti winning 200 meters. But anyway, listen, before I get carried away, let's get on to the topic. <laughs> um, how do you feel about the International Olympic Committee not banning Russia? I would have been more comfortable if they had uh, uh, banned Russia entirely. Uh, I feel that uh, government-supported doping is just way beyond the pale. It goes beyond, yes, there's doping in other countries, there's no question about it. But when you have it from the top down, uh, somebody needs to be taught a lesson. And in this case, uh, the, the man who, deputy sport minister who was put in charge of the uh, cheating at Sochi was actually appointed directly by Vladimir Putin. But they've been at it forever. The only difference now is that obviously testing has got better and so on. But I mean, if you look at the old East Germany, the old it was just absolutely part of the old East German culture to the point where many athletes were fed stuff they didn't know what they were taking, and it affected them in later life. So, somebody like you, particularly as an Olympic historian, and me as an Olympic fan. Uh, is deeply concerned about because we we love the whole Olympic ideal. 
Well, the, yes, and you know what the you mentioned the East German system, and there was no question about it. If you refused to take the the illegal drugs, they'd kick you off the team. Um, and now we see in the latest reports that the Russians were doing this, not just at uh, the Sochi Olympics, but in more than twenty different sports, uh, including curling, by the way, which I thought was really weird. And they, um, you know, they they covered up hundreds of positive tests. Uh, so it's it's just a really frustrating thing. It's it's like they were acting with impunity, and they also forced the lab uh, lab technicians to be part of it. Otherwise, you lose your job. Uh, the athletes in Sochi were told to photograph the tube, uh, the number of their tube, while they were giving a urine sample, so that it could be uh, sent by text or email back to the uh, people up top, so that they could switch it out. It was really an awful, awful system. Um, how much of it is, if if we're being um, questioning, how much of it is anti-Russian in the sense that, you know, uh, the U.S., which is presumably still a very big player in the IOC and many European countries, wouldn't like Vladimir Putin, so this is their way of getting back at the Russians? No, you don't see it that way. I, I don't see it that way because no other country, although I understand the argument on, on other levels, political levels, uh, uh, no other country had a government-supported uh, system of cheating drug tests. This was done by the government. In all the Western nations, in the European nations, in the North American nations, there isn't such a thing. We, we, we don't have government-supported systems. It's, uh, at least in doping, all the violations have been by athletes and by their trainers. I must say, uh, as a citizen of the United States, it does make me uncomfortable that Justin Gatlin will be one of the medal favorites in the men's sprints to challenge Usain Bolt, since he has served two different doping suspensions. In this latest uh, um, IOC decision, they said that any Russian athlete who failed a doping test will be prohibited from uh, competing in Rio, even if they served their suspension. And so the question is, why would you uh, uh, put that against the Russians and not anybody else? Yeah. And I suspect that that was a cover for getting rid of Yulia Stepanova. Well, I want you to talk about Stepanova because Stepanova was essentially the whistleblower, wasn't she? But she can't now compete. Do you might tell me about that? Well, Stepanova was an 800-meter runner, still is, actually. Uh, she was caught doping Russian. She was caught doping, served a suspension, and her husband was actually part of the anti-doping uh, labs, you know, in, in Russia. They fled the country and went to the West and revealed as whistleblowers what was going on in Russia. A lot of people didn't want to hear about it. So when the Track and Field Federation, the IAF, uh, banned all Russian uh, 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 track and field athletes from competing in Rio. They made two exceptions. One was a young woman who, a long jumper who competes in the United States, and the other was Stepanova in honor of the fact that she had done this. So they said, yes, she can compete. Friday, the IOC overruled them and said that Stepanova cannot compete in Rio. And one wonders if this was not a way of uh, pleasing uh, the Russian establishment who had uh, deemed Stepanova a traitor. They used that word, a traitor. Well, uh, I mean, I, I thought that was incredibly sad when, when I read about it. But um, 
what about the Olympic movement? I mean, if, if just to move slightly away from doping, but it all comes in. I mean, golf golf has no right to be there based on the attitude of, of world golfers to to the competition. But there's that. There is, but this is much. There's the issue about whether whether Rio should be a place where it takes place or not because it's Zika. And now finally you have the the Russian controversy. Surely the movement that you and I lo- have loved since since our childhood. Surely it now must be under its biggest threat ever. I, I think what concerns me uh, the problems in Rio, bad as they seem, particularly for those of us like me who are going to be there. Uh, yes, uh, th- those are disturbing. But uh, the Olympic movement will move beyond that. When the IOC gave the games to Rio, the Brazilian economy was booming, and it has a bad seven years combined with corruption. This doping situation is way more long-term, and that, that is the threat to the Olympic movement, and that has to be handled. I will say, to, to give them a little credit, the IOC, they've done this retesting of the results from 2008-2012. Eight percent of the retest proved positive. That was 98 athletes who passed the doping test at the Beijing and London Olympics who then failed in the last couple months. Those 98 positive tests are more than the combined positive tests of the last nine Olympics going back to 1980. So that at least is some progress of cracking okay. down no matter how bad things are. Your book, of course, which which I just reread all the time, your book, The Complete Book of the Olympics, and you're doing us all a favor by keep updating it so it'll be next to me when I watch television. But, David Walachinsky, um, in your book, and as we know, uh, the Russians arrived in 1952 at Helsinki. Now, it, it, the Olympics were incredibly amateur then. I mean, you talk about your father's association with Jim Thorpe who had his medals taken away for about 10 bucks he got for baseball or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. but um, they were essentially amateur except all the Eastern European countries the great Zatterbeck was in the army um, you know mm-hmm. the soccer team were all in the army from mm-hmm. from all the Eastern European countries um, they were these Eastern Europe was professional and the rest of the world was amateur so we've had a long history since 1952 when the Russians arrived and their satellites um, entered the Olympics that they were they were cheating even then but just in a different way it's quite true and uh, part of it is this uh, you know it was the you know the Soviet and East German attempt to you know to prove themselves on an international scale but I also feel that what's going on now with the Russians and with Putin it's not about the international audience. It's about the domestic audience. That Putin wanted to say to the Russian people, you can trust me, I will bring you the most gold medals in the Sochi Olympics. I will bring you the most, uh, as many gold medals as possible in the swim championships held in Russia last year, etc., etc. I'm your man. And uh, that's, I think he's very much aimed toward the domestic audience in Russia. But that's Putin, though. But that doesn't change Russia all the way. I, I think Stalin might have been in charge in 1952. <laughs> I mean, it goes that far back. And isn't yeah. it true? I, I, 
I, I think it's in your book that in the Moscow Olympics, like they opened the huge yes. gates at one yes. end of the stadium, <laughs> so the wind had helped their discus thrower or something, isn't that uh, right? The javelin thrower. Javelin thrower. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and then quickly covering up uh, successful triple jumps uh, before they could be measured. Uh, no, it was outrageous. What went on in the 1980 Olympics was was quite outrageous. I mean, we can look back on it now with a, a sneer, but back then, if you were an athlete, particularly a triple jumper, uh, that was really offensive. Your your big chance to you know to win a medal was literally uh, raked away by Russian officials. But if you if if Russia are banned from track and field, which at the end of the day, the one thing McElroy, the golfer, did make obvious is that swimming and athletics are still the cornerstone of the Olympics. If Russia is banned from track and field, and some individual federations may or may not ban them, but they've got about a week to do it, um, when are the Russians going to come back? Because the doping is state-sponsored. It's not a question that, you know... Uh, Forgive my, my 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 memory, but like it's not Vladimir Kuts we're dealing with here. We're yes. dealing with the entire Russian apparatus. Uh, that is a problem. And by the way, the the uh, swim federation FINA just announced like minutes ago that uh, seven of the Russian athletes will not be allowed to to compete uh, because it was revealed that they had. Um, uh, tested positive, and now the the swim federation is going to okay. test all retest all the Russian athletes from last year's world championship. All right. One thing that, to to answer your question, uh, a lot of this uh, the story about uh, the shocking story about Sochi came out in what was called the McLaren report, and the IOC on Friday said, "Look, we understand that Mr. McLaren was doing a rush job." And so we're going to budget for him to continue his investigation. He said, I need more time to give a more okay. complete report. And that will be after the Olympics. And that then we'll find out how deep the, the Russian problem is and what they're going to do about it. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Histor Olympic historian David Walachinsky. And just give you the book. It's a fantastic read. The complete book of the Olympics. If you enjoy the Olympics, just have it with you. We're going to Germany next, a country now where I really do think fear stalks the streets. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined by the foreign correspondent for The Guardian and Observer based in Berlin, Kate Connolly. Kate, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon, George. Now, this has been a hell of a week uh, for Germany, uh, starting with the guy, the axe-wielding guy uh, on the train, then the shooting rampage at uh, McDonald's, then in another in in Bad Wittenberg, uh, apparently killing a, a Polish woman with a machete. He was a Syrian asylum seeker. Now we have a failed Syrian asylum seeker uh, blowing himself up outside a music festival in Ansbach, uh, in Bavaria. Um, just give me a reaction to it. I, I don't have a question for you. I mean, if we were reading that about about Germany, uh, if we were thinking about that, it would be a work of fiction 10 years ago. 
That's right. It does have something of that quality about it, doesn't it? Something you might read in some uh, horror um, book, somebody imagining uh, what had gone wrong with Angela Merkel's uh, asylum policy, which is obviously how some people are interpreting it today, pointing the finger at Angela Merkel for the fact that 1.1 million refugees arrived in Germany last year after she said that uh, she would have an open-door policy for anybody in need. The Interior Minister today has uh, really uh, knocked back that theory, saying it must be pointed out that in none of the cases that you have just mentioned were any of the people involved, the perpetrators, refugees who came in that wave last autumn. So he says that that means her policy is still something of which Germany, which Germany stands by and of which they can be proud. However, he says there are aspects of it that can be tweaked and must be tweaked um, to ensure that Germans feel safe. Um, that is the overwhelming feeling here today, people feeling extremely jumpy, taking your children to a kindergarten in the morning, wondering how easy it would be for a stranger to break in um, and uh, commit an act of violence. Uh, people taking trains who last week didn't really think much of it. Um, uh, air, airplay, airport, airports, we know more or less that we're safe there in most cases. It's these more vulnerable, soft targets, shopping malls, sport halls, that type of thing, where people are feeling very scared. We don't, um, we don't know about the Munich killer. We really do not know um, at this stage about his background. Um, but what uh, statisticians and criminal, criminologists and all these experts who we've heard talking today have been saying that the risk um, uh, amongst the non-refugee or you know, the, the, the ordinary German population, they are as likely to be committers of crime as anyone else. And that is borne out by the shootings we've had in Germany in recent years, um, mass school shootings similar to those we've seen in Columbine in the, in the United States um, uh, in recent, uh, recent two, two decades. So they were, as it were, ordinary Germans who committed those acts. And in fact, um, what a lot of people are saying here of the expert community, they're saying that um, there is a sense of a sort of copycat. Um, uh, uh, there's a copycat thing going on here where people are seeing one person has committed an act and it has got a huge amount of attention. And if they have some grievance coupled with um, psychological problems, then it doesn't take all that much to push them over the edge. Um, we have seen similarities um, between, for example, the Munich um, killer and the uh, Ansbach, a man who has uh, who blew himself up, um, namely that they had grievances. In the one case, the Munich killer, um, he would would had been bullied at his school. Um, bear in mind, he was not a refugee. He he was born and bred in Munich, um, and he also had depression. And with the Ansbach killer, we've also seen that uh, his main grievance is likely to be the fact that he did not manage to gain asylum in Germany. He was going to be deported to Bulgaria, uh, which is the country in which he'd entered the EU. And he also had uh, depression and severe psychological problems. Yeah, uh, he also tried to commit suicide twice. All right, but, but Kate, uh, I mean, I don't think anybody who blows themselves up 
um, whether in in Israel or anywhere else in the world, uh, that you would uh, append a tag saying "sane" next to them, um, they would be they they would be um, mentally deranged in some way, whether by extreme religion or whatever. The problem for this, and and in a way, I'm less concerned about having you and I having a debate as to whether it's has something to do with Merkel's policy or ISIS or. Or whatever, what what because you're living there, um, and you brought it out very clearly. Are Germans and there's a heck of a lot of them, are Germans now living in fear? They are, as I as I as I stressed just now. Except they deal with it in a quite a pragmatic way. I mean, it was the case at the weekend that following the Munich shooting, you still saw many Bavarians who are a very jolly lot in general, anyway, still out in their beer gardens, enjoying the, enjoying their beer and not letting this um, uh, really uh, affect them. And that was the message of the Interior Minister today. Now I know easier said than done. If you yourself were caught up in something like that, I can't imagine that it would not completely change the way that you would decide to lead your life. Uh, It would make you a lot more cautious. However, he is saying we cannot uh, let ourselves um, be, uh, we cannot let this change the way we live. We need to just be far more alert. We need to be extremely cautious. There's a word, um, I found it quite interesting, I've never heard it more than I have in the last couple of days, called Bazonenheit. Everybody's being asked to be Bazonen. It has the word sun in it, but it actually means um, to be uh, calm-headed and uh, sober um, about what is going on around and about you. And that's the praise that has been heaped on the public in um, it, the concert yesterday um, where the uh, suicide uh, bomber uh, blew himself up um, on the streets of Munich on Saturday. Um, I think people are in their own way trying to adjust to this. But Um, Kate, sorry, Kate, I mean, this thing about we're we're not going to let the terrorists or whoever they are, we're not going to let them uh, affect the way we live. I heard that in France. I heard that in Belgium, and I'm hearing it now in Germany. This is this is the natural political reaction to say this kind of thing. But what the next step? is I asked you this when we spoke a week ago and you said, no, it doesn't matter. Merkel, surely, Merkel's, um, and she's been around for whatever it is, 11, 12, 13 years. years, Yeah. yeah. Surely she must, if this continues, and God knows we hope it won't, but if this kind of thing were to continue, her government must come under pressure, surely. Her government is coming under pressure, and uh, she is on her holidays right now, but um, about an hour and a half drive from Berlin, so she could get back um, uh, in a hurry if necessary. Uh, obviously, we're not uh, hoping that it doesn't happen, but anything could happen these days um, that would require her to come back. Um, her interior minister, in the twice in the last week, has cancelled his holiday, his comeback from the United States from holiday to deal with this. Everybody is uh, really, there's a sense of, of, of crisis, of people coming together to work out a strategy to deal with this, that her government is coming under pressure. But I think that um, Merkel is still in, as we discussed last week, still in an extremely strong position. There's nobody else here who people have as much faith in. We have a uh, far-right element, um, right-wing populist far right, there's a whole mix of them within the party, the um, alternative for Deutschland, alternatives for Germany, who are really 
trying to put on the pressure, who even as the uh, shooting was going on in Munich, were saying that Merkel was to blame for this, even though, as we then soon found out that the shooter was not um, yeah. an asylum seeker. Um, but um, that is certainly, um, they are piling on the pressure, but so far she's been criticised for the fact that it took her, I think she responded to the Munich shooting some 17 hours after uh, Barack Obama. But having said that, she ever responded to it once. The details were clear as to what exactly had happened um, who this man was and, uh, and, 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 and the details of what uh, he had carried okay. out. And even while um, when Obama spoke, it was still believed that maybe there were three killers on the loose. And I think this is another interesting aspect of this, that a lot of the fear um, that is being fueled is actually coming from ordinary people, maybe quite understandable, but the amount of false uh, messages that are being sent on uh, social network sites and Twitter and Facebook, um, people thinking that they've seen some shooter, some killer, warning people, making the police's life very difficult, and also helping to spread that sense of fear. Now, maybe that's a, an unfair observation to make, um, but there is a big question here today as to how that can be dealt with in a situation when this happens the next time. And, of course, the law of unintended consequence um, might well be, Kate, latest figures out of America now, Trump is ahead of Hillary, uh, even in the matchup with four candidates. Uh, and every one of these, again, um, could be affecting an American presidential election. We can but wait and see. Thanks, as always, for your calm and reasoned comment. Um, the Berlin correspondent for The Guardian, Kate Connolly. Kate, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome, George. Take care. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, the uh, following the Republican convention, no doubt there was a boost in the Trump ratings. There are also, sadly, as we look at the tragedies uh, across Germany, they're probably helping the Trump cause as well. But my next guest uh, had the pleasure of interviewing Donald Trump almost 35 years ago. And more importantly, my next guest, way back in February, and he was probably the first one to say it, he thought that Trump might be president. And at that point, um, there were probably a ton contenders for the nomination, not alone the presidency. It is uh, Eamon Fingleton, whose book, In Praise of Hard Industries, was published in Boston by Houghton Mifflin uh, in 1999. And Hard Industry, the reason I mentioned the book is I think Eamon has some interesting connections to make uh, about present-day U.S. Eamon, welcome to the program. Thank you, George. Um, interviewing... Uh, uh, Trump all those years ago. How does he compare with modern-day Trump? I, he was much more mainline. Um, I, there weren't any expletives uh, to delete. I don't think there were any uh, uh, cavalier uh, disregard for uh, facts. Uh, uh, he um, was generally um, a, a chief executive in the way that you would expect a, a major chief, chief executive. To yeah, behave. now at this point, of course, you were working for the business magazine Forbes, I guess, and yes. that's why you talked to him. Forbes being a major magazine, he was delighted to give you the interview. Um, now you look 
back. Um, and, and what you've said is, is very different now. It, it, therefore, do you believe what we're seeing now is not really Trump, that the, Trump, the real Trump was the man you interviewed all those years ago? Well, I think he developed this uh, reality TV persona, and that's how most Americans have come to know him over many years. And uh, I don't think he can shake that persona now. So he um, behaves in a rather brash way. Uh, he's often cavalier with the facts and so on. Uh, he's not very flattering about his opponents. Uh, but uh, I, I think that that is a persona that was acquired over the last 20, 25 years. Now, in February, um, and I have your article, uh, you, you suggested he could do it. <laughs> okay? Yes, indeed. And, I mean, uh, you said, after South Carolina, here's why Trump will be America's next president. That was in February when people would have given him a chance, but they would not have put that headline on the article. Yeah. Why did you think way back then that he would be the next president? You were saying even more than the nominee. You were saying next president. Why was that? Well, uh, part of the thinking was that Hillary would be his opponent. Yeah. And uh, I think of Hillary as quite flawed, um, more flawed than uh, Trump is. Um, uh, other, another part of the thinking was simply that uh, the other Republican contenders were all really establishment figures on the major issues. And people forget it, but uh, Trump's issues are very, very strong. Um, they resonate uh, in key uh, swing states such as Ohio and, um, uh, and Pennsylvania, manufacturing, now, for instance. Yeah, now that's the interesting thing here because the, the, obviously what resonates is the idea um, of fear. And many people sort of are appalled that he plays on fear. I, I'm not quite so appalled because I think people have a reason to fear. Um, so that plays well with Americans. And secondly, this thing about make America great. Now, I'm really interested because, as you know, having looked at America in such detail in your career, it, this isn't an election about 50 states. This is an election about four, two of which you've just mentioned, Ohio and Pennsylvania. Probably to get elected, he probably has to win both of those. Yes. Now, your book, In Praise of Hard Industry, presumably Ohio and Pennsylvania, the great powerhouses of previous American hard industry, are no more. Now, now you think that links into the election in some way? Well, um, uh, people put it like this: uh, people of our generation, sixties, uh, uh, are, are um, they remember an America that really was at the top of its game, right across uh, manufacturing. Uh, there was virtually no area of advanced manufacturing where America was not the leader back in the sixties, uh, back in the early seventies. Um, uh, these people uh, of a certain age remember that world. And uh, they say, where has it gone? And uh, they blame the Washington establishment, not least the, the Clintons, uh, Hillary and Bill. Well, the point about hard industry, your book, In Praise of Hard Industry, the, the like I, when you go to Pittsburgh and if you get out of just the center of Pittsburgh or get past the, your hotel front door and you drive around, you see all those former steel towns that are now ghost towns. If you Interestingly, where he held the very convention in Cleveland. Cleveland was a powerhouse of, of that kind of, of industry. And then uh, Ford and Detroit and these cities. I mean, Detroit is a wasteland. 
Absolutely, yeah. And, and Cleveland was a, a very much auto-related uh, components, basically. Yeah. So you think that it will be a certain generation might remember that, blame the Clinton. So that will be people of an older generation, but older people tend to vote. So you would see them as a powerful vote in those key states like Ohio and Pennsylvania. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, younger people have to worry about immigration. And, uh, of course, undocumented aliens have no bargaining power with employers, so they really drive down wages for everybody else. But that, America, the numbers, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time in Houston, for instance, and Houston doesn't know how many Mexicans live in Houston mm. because they're they're undocumented, so they literally have no idea. Texas or Arizona or places like this have no idea. Now, um, people of a different political persuasion would say, no, it's awful, you know, the way you treat these people or the way you talk about them. It's not how you and I talk about them. It's how the American voter thinks, isn't it? Absolutely, so? yeah. And um, obviously people are people and uh, they have their right to this pl- uh, their place on the planet. The issue is legality. If you've got 12 million uh, people who are in the United States on an Ill- illegal basis, um, you have to wonder, you know, what's going on. Um, we in Europe have immigration, but it's all virtually all legal immigration. Um, the Americans have uh, a reason to be much more as upset about immigration than we uh, than people in Ireland or in the UK. So, so Trump scores on these kind of points. They just although you know, thirty five years ago, you interviewed this man. You've made the point how he changed really almost by television. I suppose it's an it will be an, it's a kind of a science fiction book in a way that the that the president of the USA becomes from a reality TV show. Like it's almost a work of science fiction. But what you also said, though, was you said that Hillary Clinton is a flawed character and a flawed candidate. You presumably concur that these are two of the most unpopular candidates the American presidential election has ever seen. Well, uh, they both have uh, very serious negatives, don't they? Uh, Different negatives. Uh, uh, Hillary, people don't like. Trump, I think, uh, many people... Uh, take to his personality, although they might not admit it. Uh, they they uh, think that he might be a good person to have a beer with, basically. Uh, Hillary is always uh, comes across as calculating and um, maybe a bit... Uh, um, what's the uh, polite way of saying this? Um, she, um, she keeps her cards close to her chest and uh, she keeps changing her story and, and so on. Um, Trump... Um, um, sometimes misspeaks, uh, and he rarely backs down. But uh, he he is consistent on the major issues. Whereas- but but how do you react to to people listening now, and who who will say, you know? We are afraid uh, if Donald Trump is president of the USA. I mean, there is almost a view out there, outside America, and particularly in 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 Britain and Ireland, um, this thing like that essentially Trump is is going to deliver World War Three, uh, and that they are fearful for what kind of a planet it's going to be if Trump is president. Do you believe that? I, um, no, I don't. I, I, I think the uh, ironic position is that Trump is uh, the peacemaking candidate in, in this uh, election, and Hillary has a record of causing wars. 
Um, uh, she, of course, was on the wrong side of the debate on Iraq originally, and she stayed with that position for a very long time that she approved of the war. Uh, and then uh, there was uh, the stuff in Yugoslavia and um, in Libya, um, and she was really hawkish. Um, Trump, on the other hand, uh, while he says um, very uh, provocative things about ISIS and about uh, Muslim immigration, um, he's not in the business of um, promoting wars. All right, but they finally, because your book was was a was a key point in praise of hard industries, written by my guest Eamon Fingleton. Um, Eamon, they, Trump can't change that though. The hard industries gone from America. I remember seeing one of the early debates when. Uh, What's his name? Was the third candidate? I was thinking Poirot, but he was a detective. Uh, uh, um, I'm, yeah, we'll get him. Yeah. Um, well, I remember him in one of those debates talking about R- Rubio. Uh, no, 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 we'll get him. We'll fit it into the. We'll fit it into the thing, right? Yeah. But I remember him saying in the debate, you know, all the industry is just going to disappear from America down the toilet. And that's, in effect, what's happened, isn't it? But Trump can't reverse that. That's irreversible. Well, um, I, I think that it's a bit like a scorched earth. Uh, it'll take a while for the grass to come up again. But um, his program of protectionism, while uh, economists hate it, uh, would have the effect of stimulating uh, the growth of new grass. All right. And my guest, Eamon Fingleton, uh, author of, as, as I've told you, in praise of hard industries, uh, but uh, formerly, uh, of course, at Forbes, when he interviewed uh, Trump all those years ago, three more than three decades now, but also stuck his neck out fairly forcibly last February and saying it was going to be President Trump. So um, we'll all have to buy him a drink come November. Eamon, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure.